0: Hello and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Infectious Disease podcast. I'm your host, Jennifer Blanchette. Today's episode features coverage of the International AIDS Society's 2020 Virtual COVID-19 Conference. During this podcast, Dr. Renslow Shearer from Chicago, Illinois, will discuss important new data presented at the Virtual COVID-19 Conference, including studies evaluating characteristics and predictors of COVID-19 mortality as well as several studies investigating different treatment strategies for COVID-19. For more information on Dr. Shearer and for a link to additional online CCO coverage of the virtual COVID-19 conference, including a downloadable slide set covering the studies discussed in this episode, please visit the show notes. Now, let's get started and hear what Dr. Shearer has to say about these new data.
1: Uh, Thanks, Jennifer. Uh, One of the great advantages of these virtual sessions, and I'm indebted to Jennifer and CCO for this opportunity to talk to you all, is that we don't have to use masks, but I hope all of you are being safe in your work and taking these simple steps, wearing a mask, washing your hands all the time as much as you can and keeping safe distances and and uh, as we go through, I, I love the question that says in a typical week, I don't think we've had a typical week uh, since the holidays in 2019. Um, so today, I'm really uh, happy to talk to you all about COVID in Spain and the predictors of mortality and then several aspects of COVID in the United States and globally in terms of the predictors of clinical outcomes, uh, a comparison to a natural cohort, the effect of co-administration of hydroxychloroquine, the effect of race and ethnicity on the remdesivir outcomes in the severe trial, and then a very interesting study from Iran looking at sofosbuvir and Cladosphere. So let's get underway. I'm also impressed. This is the first time I've ever started one of the CCO webcasts and had a question actually waiting for me uh, before we get underway so that's a first i look forward to the question answer period so this was a study from beringer looking at um, the first hundred patients hospitalized all across spain a total n of 4,000, with um, a focus on the mortality in those patients and so this was a group where 61 percent were male the average age was 70 which is very important then one of the challenges that we face with all the covid studies is Looking at slightly different cohorts and seeing different mortality and outcomes associated with them, so it's very important to know the baseline. And in, this is an older age population where the median age was 70, 93% were white, and they were mostly Spanish. Uh, and you can see that most of the positive samples came from the nasal pharynx. These were the comorbidities and uh, that were associated with these individuals. You can see that a quarter had. Three or more, and half had either one or two. Um, Many of them were on other related medications at entry, like 5% were on steroids, um, another 5% either on chemotherapy or biologic agents, and quite a few, almost a fifth, were on ACE inhibitors. Um, Interesting, in the the new Spain, um, the number of current smokers was only 6%. A third were former smokers, and almost two-thirds had never smoked. And you can see the comorbidities listed on the right side, with hypertension being by far the most common. At about 50%, chronic heart disease and diabetes was closer to a quarter, chronic lung disease, maybe a fifth. And in this population in Spain, maybe about 20% were obese. These are the vital signs and the laboratory values and x ray findings. The average time for um, symptoms to hospitalization was four days. Um, That range of four to six days is pretty universal in the series from China, from Italy, and from the United States and and other countries. In terms of the x-ray findings, uh, the most common was bilateral opacities in 77% of patients. And in most cases, the follow-ups were worse in about two-thirds of patients. You can see that uh, about uh, 10% presented with an elevated white blood cell count. Um, Lymphopenia was very common. Almost half of patients have had lymphopenia, and that's been associated with worse survival. Uh, Other notable findings, high liver enzymes in almost a third, a high LDH in 40%, and almost everybody, 85%, had high CRP slide looks at the medications and supportive therapy. You can see that quite a few also received uh, or during the trial, uh, the study received either lopinavir, ritonavir, or hydroxychloroquine. That was more than two-thirds of patients. Another third received azithromycin and uh, interferon beta. Also, 28% of patients importantly received corticosteroids. Again, thinking about how to analyze these data, now that we know that in selected patients, dexamethasone, a short course used early in the course in the UK series, was associated with improved mortality, this also has to be factored in the possible contributors to differences in mortality figures among these patients. Oh, excuse me, I went, uh, I skipped over just the. Um, Oxygen therapy um, was used in about 80% of patients, about a fifth ended up in intensive care unit, slightly less, either had uh, had mechanical ventilation or non-invasive ventilation, high flow CPAP or um, uh, by nasal cannula. Use of vasopressors was in almost a fifth of patients. So these are the clinical outcomes you can see as almost all series that the higher the age, the um, greater the mortality. And it's one of the extraordinary challenges we're facing with COVID is the wide range of clinical presentations from completely asymptomatic and mild disease in 80% of patients to the 15 to 20% of patients with moderate to severe disease who may need hospitalization. And then the fraction of those who end up with greater oxygen needs in intensive care with mechanical ventilation and ARDS and a host of other complications. And the challenge is to be able to predict in whom that's going to happen. If you think about looking at treatment trials in that context, it makes it it very difficult for investigators to compare the natural history of the disease to the use of any intervention, particularly multiple interventions, such as steroids and the others that we'll be looking at. There was also a gender difference. Many studies have suggested that uh, males have a higher mortality, and this was also true, as you see, um, in the right-hand figure. Excuse me. There was a long list of factors that were associated with a greater likelihood of mortality in this series. So in addition to older age and male sex, if you had hypertension, if you were obese, you had cirrhosis, chronic neurologic disease, active cancer, dementia, uh, presentation of, of dysmia or confusion, uh, a lower SAO2, higher white blood cell count. So leukocytosis, not only does lymphopenia predict more severe disease, but a persistent leukocytosis in this series does as well, and other series have shown that. A higher neutrophil to lymphocyte ratio, that may also be an indicator of the low lymphocyte count. Low platelet count, prolonged INR, a lower EGFR, and a higher CRP. And I think these are similar findings that have been seen in um, many other cohorts that have looked at mortality. But I think the important thing to say in this cohort, the overall mortality rate was 28%. That's a very high comparative mortality rate if you look across the series. It's similar to the very initial series in Wuhan, China, and the very early series in Bergamo and in northern Italy. And remember, they they selected deliberately the first 100 patients all across Spain. So there was very little experience, very little preparation for the management of these patients. And that likely figured into the higher mortality in this group. So let me turn to uh, several different analyses looking uh, in and around the study 5773 and uh, remdesivir in uh, patients with severe COVID-19. And I chose this first because it gives some sense of that was a mortality overall of 28% in the most severely affected patients. This was the group of uh, 312 patients with severe disease um, meeting a definition of oxygen requirements, and I'll share that with you in a moment. Um, Compared to a separate cohort, retrospectively selected, matched as well as possible in the same time period as the From Desivir, looking at both recovery and mortality. And we're going to be looking at those endpoints all the way through. And there were a variety of statistical analyses that were done to try to make sense out of these data, um, because of course it's not a prospective, randomized, and blinded uh, clinical trial. And I think really what you can see is in the middle figure and the figure on the right, the primary endpoint of recovery at day 14 or mortality at day 14. There was a twofold greater likelihood of recovery at day 14 in those who received remdesivir. That was three quarters of patients compared to 59% in the standard of care. And the mortality was uh, favored the remdesivir arm as well with 24 deaths in the remdesivir arm or 7.6% compared to 12.5% in the standard of care when they looked at the um, odds of recovery and death and the factors that contributed to that, as I mentioned, remdesivir uh, was a strong predictor. It was effective, actually. It made a difference in both those who were younger and older, those who were under age 40 and those older. It was true also in uh, uh, black or African-American patients with a 2.3% odds ratio uh, and in um, just barely in those with other race. The benefits were seen in those who were either ventilated or who required high flow oxygen, but not, interestingly, those who only had mild disease. And this was also a finding that was true in the earlier study published in the New England Journal. The benefit seems to be, though, in those with moderate to severe disease. If you were, um, there was no effect of other either biologic agents or hydroxychloroquine, didn't uh, alter the influence in terms of mortality, but it did. Um, there still was a benefit in patients on those two treatments um, with uh, with remdesivir um, in terms of recovery at day 14. And looking at coexisting uh, comorbidities, those who had hypertension there was a benefit for recovery and um, a substantial benefit in terms of mortality with either cardiovascular disease or COPD. So there's a sense of uh, the improvement in mortality. You saw again that the difference in these two cohorts was 7.6 percent compared to 12.5 percent. When you think back to the Spanish cohort, that mortality rate was 28 percent. Well, let's keep looking and look more deeply at the remdesivir study, the 5773. It was structured as a head-to-head comparison of five days versus 10 days of drug. Drug was dosed in each case with 200 milligrams IV of a loading dose, and then 100 milligrams daily IV for the remaining five or 10 days. The criteria for entry was you had to receive drug within four days of the COVID positive test. You had to have some oxygen desaturation, less than or equal to 94%, and you had to have an abnormal x-ray with bilateral infiltrates. And there were these, again, two different types of Um, endpoints. One was the primary endpoint was time to clinical improvement um, with either a two-point improvement on this ordinal scale that I'll show you in a minute or time to all-cause mortality. So again, improvement or mortality. And just the punchline on the original point of the study is there a difference with five or 10 days? There was not. And so the standard of care currently is only to use five days of remdesivir at the earliest time point possible. This is the ordinal scale and so you see that anyone who was discharged was considered to be clinically improved anyone who had mortality to be in the severe disease and a poor outcome and then between those was um, all the way from room air not requiring much medical attention room air but requiring some intervention low flow oxygen non-invasive ventilation and then finally mechanical ventilation and change um, again with two or more points improvement on that scale was also considered to be recovery in this trial. So the baseline characteristics in the trial that were associated with improvement were those who uh, were receiving low flow oxygen compared to people with higher oxygen needs who were under age 65. Interestingly, those who were black as compared to Asian or those who were white as compared to Asian. And I'll show you that the numbers in these cells are are probably small, and I would take this with a little bit of a grain of salt. It was also true that if you were enrolled outside of Italy, your chances for recovery improvement were better than if you were um, enrolled in Italy. There it was also an interesting signal that if you received a biologic medication like tocilizumab, you were worse off. So if you didn't receive that medicine, you were more likely to have improvement got to be very careful with that marker. You might conclude or want to conclude from that that therefore tocilizumab or the other immune modulators themselves are the problem, but they're only being chosen or used in patients who are in extremis in which cytokine storm is under consideration. And for that reason, it's not clear that that's a fair marker. I think that's one of the more challenging questions that's facing the literature right now is are there patients in whom tocilizumab can be beneficial And it's very difficult in this setting. Again, there at the bottom, you see that the treatment duration did not make a difference. Um, In terms of association with all-cause mortality, you did worse. You had a greater likelihood of mortality if you were receiving high flow oxygen, if you were mechanically ventilated or received CPAP as compared to just low flow by nasal cannula or room air, and if you were age over 65. And again, the treatment duration mattered not at all. Um, I'm very proud of this paper. My colleague at the University of Chicago, Kate Mulane, was the first author and um, was one of the many uh, folks at uh, at, at my institution who worked heroically to enroll almost a quarter of all of our COVID patients on remdesivir during the course of those really difficult months of March, April, and May. Um, These are the baseline characteristics. The total N for the 5773 were Uh, 397, and this is a look at the 229 enrollees in the United States. You can see that the total numbers within each cell, there were only 18 Asians, so it's difficult to draw too many inferences from these conclusions. There were 17 Hispanic whites and 119 non-Hispanic whites, 43 blacks. And the other is presumably those where there were mixed or um, incomplete information. Oh, I should also point out some differences in the gender breakdown. So you see there were more women represented, for example, among uh, uh, Asians and fewer in the other category. You can see that those who were age 65 or other was quite variable as well. Much higher percentage in the non-Hispanic whites. There was a much higher percentage of obesity in blacks. And again, if you think about these cofactors and which may be the strongest, it does make these analyses Difficult and very important as you look at these studies think about the cohort and the characteristics of the population that's being described as you look at the outcomes because there's quite a bit of variability depending on these baseline characteristics. Nonetheless, uh, they were able to show in this analysis that there was really no substantial difference in the likelihood of discharge, clinical improvement, or mortality which were the three indicators that they looked like by um, any of these uh, breakdowns. And in fact, in the, the greater than two point clinical improvement, there was greater likelihood of improvement among African-Americans than there was among uh, non-Hispanic whites. And we don't see that too often in clinical trials. It'd be very interesting to look further at whether what, what determinants were associated with that in a larger cohort. I think the most important thing is, no difference in mortality across each of those um, groups. And I, it's a, it's a tremendously encouraging signal that in this setting where we've seen, per, for example, in my city, two to threefold greater likelihood of severe disease or mortality among people of com- color compared to whites. When it comes to response to remdesivir and the likelihood of benefit and a reduction in mortality, there was no difference seen um, in this fabulous trial uh, authored by Kate Mullane. There were also um, important outcomes in terms of safety. Uh, Safety profiles were overall comparable between blacks, Hispanic whites, and non-Hispanic whites. There was a signal that there was somewhat higher rates of serious adverse effects in grade three or four in Asians. But remember, with only 18 people, it would only take a small number to to give that signal. So I, I wouldn't put too much on that. Certainly, there will need to be exploration of the pharmacokinetics and adverse events in that population. So I'm going to move on then to uh, another very important analysis out of that same study, which is the question, what can we learn from this study by comparing those patients who received hydroxychloroquine to those patients who did not? Um, And there is some in vitro data that suggests there may be an antagonism by uh, chloroquine on the uh, antiviral activity of remdesivir. And with the long half-life of hydroxychloroquine that's around for a long time, it certainly means that that's a factor at least to look at. And based on that in vitro data, um, this analysis was undertaken. And they're very quick to point out, again, these weren't prospectively matched. This was just looking at those people enrolled in the trial who happened to also be getting hydroxychloroquine. And among the differences in those two groups was a lower portion of obesity and cardiovascular disease in the group's that received hydroxychloroquine and a higher proportion of both men and white race in that group. And you can see if you look even at the baseline ordinal scale, so this was at baseline, there's a greater degree, a higher oxygen requirement in those who received hydroxychloroquine. So taken together, that's uh, you can see 45 overall or 73% had a higher oxygen requirement compared to uh, the total. it's, if you put yourself in the position of those who were caring for patients during this time, it may be that hydroxychloroquine was thought to be given added value. They were pulling out all the stops. It's possible also that the clinical trial timing didn't exactly uh, co-align with the timing of admission, and so hydroxychloroquine was, um, was suggested in that setting. So there were um, important findings in terms of hospital discharge and two point improvement. You can see that the favoring the group that was without hydroxychloroquine, there was a shorter time to the two point clinical improvement. Um, And similarly, that overall time to recovery was shorter. One other important finding in this trial was regarding safety. There was a suggestion of a significant greater likelihood of grade three adverse events overall in the group that received hydroxychloroquine compared to those that did not. And that was true also for the remdesivir-related grade three. So at a minimum, you could say it confused the picture on what was an SAE and what, which, which drug or what drug was it related to. Um, so we certainly have had safety concerns for other reasons with hydroxychloroquine in terms of uh, QT interval and cardiac toxicity as well. So certainly one of the more um, intriguing and unexpected uh, posters came from uh, Andrew Hill and Siddiqui. Uh, this was the DDRI study from Iran looking at sofosbuvir and declatisvir, which is the directly acting hepatitis C drug combination. Um, in combination with lopinavir, ritonavir, compared to lopinavir, ritonavir alone for severe COVID-19. Um, I think all of you are familiar with sovasvivir to cladosphere as uh, HCV medication, and I'll show you some of the in vitro data that shows that it has SARS-CoV-2 activity within the PK exposures at uh, standard dosing levels. Um, I'll also show you that the reason that it's available is that it's um, listed as both available, known to have activity, and readily readily available and inexpensive in Iran. Um, that's certainly in contrast to other centers in the West, including the United States. So they took four hospitals in Iran, and they did a prospective randomized trial matching those two different treatment regimens, either lopinavir alone or lopinavir plus sofasvir to clasphere. Their enrollment criteria were quite similar to what we've talked about. So hospitalized, they required a fever, and they had to have either respiratory rate over 24, O2 saturation less than 94%, or a PAO2-FIO2 ratio less than 300, had to have known confirmation SARS-CoV-2, and an abnormal chest X-ray. And the primary endpoint in this case, again, um, as in a similar vein is this composite clinical recovery within 14 days from study treatment and until things that led to um, improvement were fever normalization, respiratory rate is less than 24, O2 saturation greater than 94%. So here's some of the preclinical activity looking at sofasvavir and declasvir against SARS-CoV-2 in vitro data. And you can see evidence that both it's active in and of itself and then active in uh, in comparison to Lopinavir and Ritonavir. And then maybe most striking for those of us in the United States who know this to be one of the pricier combinations at the present time here and also in Europe. Um, it's extremely inexpensive where it's been uh, made available in the Middle East and Bangladesh and in India, Pakistan and, and as well in Iran. And so it led to um, what I think is a very smart design of looking at whether or not it have an impact. I would also categorize this as an exploratory study, and the investigators were very careful to note the limitations of the study. So here's the baseline characteristics. You can see the age in this population was in the 58 to 62. Remember, compare that to Spain, where it was a full decade older um, in that group. Right away, you can see many more men, 61% compared to the control population of 42%. That's a difference, and there are statistical ways in which that would be taken care of. Um, really not substantial differences in O2 requirements, not in comorbidities, but um, you can see COPD was 18% in the CFAS. we to had group, 27% in the control group. Otherwise, pretty well matched. A little more diabetes in the so far, it's group. So there was a, a signal of a benefit of time to recovery in this um, in this small trial. And remember, only 33 per- people in both arms. Um, so it did not make clinical significance for clinical recovery in less than 14 days. But it did show shorter time to recovery, six days versus 11 days. And that's what we're looking at in that graphic. No difference in the number, um, a significant difference in the invasive mechanical ventilation, but it was three compared to seven. And you can see also that if um, there was a difference in the um, folks who got uh, lopinavir, ritonavir, note also that a number of patients also got corticosteroids, which may complicate the interpretation of these data. So upon seeing that, they decided to... um, look and include patients who were enrolled in two other studies elsewhere in Iran. And um, these studies had varying levels of control. Frankly, one was not controlled um, at all. And that makes makes this um, a very questionable data set to interpret because they've taken patients from two other trials that were structured in the same way, but without the same careful randomization and so you don't know now if we're mixing apples and oranges and looking at this. Nonetheless, that's what they did. And they um, came up with the overall mortality that favored the group that was um, treated with sofazbovir into cladosphere. So in that pooled analysis, just to give you the flavor, now you're up to 92 compared to 84 patients. The ages are fairly comparable. There's still a gender difference uh, with more males than the sofazbovir to cladosphere. There's otherwise um, reasonable representation in both groups, but this is just what they're showing us. It's hard to know all the other variables about these patients that might have played a role. We remember that steroids were used. We're not hearing anything about steroids here, for example, and that can affect outcomes and mortality as we've seen from the UK study. So those are the numbers overall for survival when you look at the five out of 92 in the cladosphere group compared to 17 out of 84, and um, I want to I, I applaud the investigators because the first thing they said was this has led to a large, randomized bilateral um, you know uh, trial called Discovery Discover in which they will head to head compare these two regimens in 600 people and prospectively enroll them, and they're anticipating results as early as September 2020. Um, so you can see Iran has a, has a large burden of infection. They were very careful to say in their description at the conclusion, this is a flawed analysis. There was not good randomization in one of those three trials. So patients might have been cherry picked, the healthier ones to receive uh, one drug versus the other. What they, This was a signal that there, there's a potential reason to do a prospective clinical trial. And I think that was exactly the right decision. So that leads us to the question and answer, and I'll take a few, and um, I saw the one that was waiting for me. It's just been sitting there. Can you predict infectivity by a cutoff of of CT value over 30? Is this a valid method? You know, I haven't really talked about that, and it's not in my area of expertise, so I'm sorry. I'm, I'm not able to answer that question. There's a question on an update about antibody testing and how to interpret results. I know this is on people's minds, and I'm, I'm happy to address this. I don't think you can use antibody tests reliably for very much for several reasons. First of all, since it's been described as the Wild West out there with wide range of commercial laboratories being allowed to make these tests, and I, first of all, you don't know any kind of scientific credibility and reliability. So the first thing is, If you're going to do this, then use what is a credible, one of the few um, credible, reliable labs that um, performs the test. So do some homework around the test. Secondly, I'm not using them at all clinically because a substantial portion of people with mild to moderate disease have very low titers, even negligible titers. And yet we in the presence of an established infection. And it seems as though there's some early evidence that the overall period of time may wane as quickly as within two to three months. There's also quite a bit of cross reactivity with these antibodies and the antibodies from simple upper respiratory infections caused by other coronaviruses. It is not clear at all that when you're looking at a rising titer, you can say this is due to uh, SARS-CoV-2 to the specific virus that causes COVID-19 and not one of these other respiratory viruses. So, we're in a real dilemma with how to use this. No one that I know has recommended using it for any workplace placement, for health workers, for people to feel confident that they can now go out and not have to use these masks and wash your hands and safe distance. So, I, I don't see a role for them clinically. I would discourage you from using them. Uh, two of those questions are about this. As cases continue to increase, and pharmacologic studies are for moderate, severe inpatients. What are the clinical pearls for positive patients that show some symptoms of respiratory discomfort but are sent home? You know, I, I have a lot of experience with this because I worked with a group of medical students who did home calls, follow-up calls for people who were tested positive, who didn't meet criteria for hospitalization and were sent home. And um, let me tell you a little bit about them. Only uh, less than half had fever. Most commonly, they had shortness of breath and cough. But the next most common symptoms were GI symptoms and anosmia. So a slightly different population tended to be younger, a younger age group, which is of course a good thing. Um, And then 10% over time required had recurring or more severe symptoms and had to come back and be hospitalized. So one in ten. So even when we're sending people home, it's very important to review red flag symptoms that should bring them back to the ER. And during the height of the epidemic, it was it was very important to let people know emergency rooms are safe. Most people who get admitted for COVID are discharged um, after a hospital stay. Don't delay. If you are feeling worse, short of breath at rest, um, terrible chest pain, um, the confusion, um, a variety of the usual things that would make you go to the emergency room, then by all means go. In addition to that, another full third of patients needed work, help with work notes, with childcare, unstable housing, primary care physicians, and these, this team of medical students, I can't say enough about what they did. They had been yanked off of the medical wards. They were third-years who were eager to have some clinical experience, and within two weeks, they formed this callback service and served uh, some 400 uh, patients in their homes. There's a a real important set of questions in there. They also dealt with mental health problems, anxiety, isolation. In some cases, the students had longitudinal relationships that lasted a couple of weeks. The longest, I think, was 30 days. And, you know, as we're doing more virtual work, uh, which I have mixed feelings about, but clearly is convenient and helpful for patients, or or even just the use of the simple telephone, um, that's the most important thing, is to help those patients not be terrified and isolated, just making telephone contacts or e-visits or some support mechanism for folks who are in their homes, I think, is really valuable and rewarding. So despite the data, would you use a longer duration in immunocompromised patients admitted with severe disease? Would you also use it beyond the four-day window from PCR positivity? These are really tough clinical questions. I think um, most people now believe the answer to the first question is no, that we're just not seeing a benefit of an additional period of time on remdesivir. I'm uh, first, I think, would go with compassionate use. And certainly in the compassionate use, a lot of patients have been treated after that first four-day window. I think that's reasonable. In my own experience, we've seen a lot less benefit when drug is started later. So I would say part of your system, health system mechanism of responding to COVID should include rapid assessment and early ability to treat people early if they need it. And Remember, remember remdesivir really did its job in patients with moderate to severe disease who had some oxygen requirement who met those criteria. So um, I think that's it's a reasonable way to be selective with their use. I would never deny it from somebody else. I also think we need, this is a very important question of the UK data, dexamethasone, we all have access to it. They also saw that similar patient population required dexamethasone, or that's the group that got benefit from it, not those with milder disease. And so we need to answer the question, are they both good, remdesivir and dexamethasone? Should they be used together? Is one better sooner? We've. Um, I think that's a very important ongoing question. Another question from David Butler. So thanks for this. Was there a subgroup analysis in the remdesivir studies that asked the question that I just answered? So um, not that I've seen. I believe they have that data and I wouldn't be surprised if they were looking at it. Um, So I'm sorry not to be able to answer that question. Your thoughts on HIV antivirals and PrEP as providing some immunity to COVID. Hmm. So we don't have any evidence to that. And if you're asking about potential effect of tenofovir on it, there's there's not good evidence into that effect um, at this moment. And if you're asking, well, what if someone was on darunavir or lopinavir, one of the boosted protease inhibitors that has been shown to have that effect? um, It's possible, uh, but we don't know. Um, So I'd I'd say... let me speak to that, though, because this is a very another important part of the outcome of this meeting. In general, our understanding of HIV and COVID, and this was shown in the VA cohort study best, I think, The um, there's no difference in the response to therapy, the incidence of COVID or the likelihood of severe disease or mortality, if you're HIV positive compared to HIV negative. That's the best answer in the United States. And a Very nice posters and papers from the United Kingdom and from France and from Italy all reaching that same conclusion. Um, And the VA cohort is important because it's like 30,000 people with HIV and they had several hundred HIV positive patients who became COVID positive. They matched them to um, age matched veterans who were HIV negative who got HIV there was no difference in mortality, hospitalization, severity of illness. Um, the one piece of data that I think is important that's in opposition to that is a resource limited piece of data from the Western Cape in South Africa. And in that study, again, a massive group, 21,000 people with HIV were HIV positive and a few hundred who were COVID positive. In that group, having HIV had a twofold increased risk of mortality compared to being HIV negative. It was also true if you either had tuberculosis or past tuberculosis, there was about a twofold increased risk of mortality. And yet that was much less of a, had less of an impact than older age than uh, other comorbidities like diabetes or COPD. So, but that's sort of the range of where we think it now. And in each of those different studies in the African study, in the VA cohort study, 80-plus percent of people were on therapy and controlled. There's been a couple of small signals that you might have a tougher course if you're uncontrolled, if you have high virus load and low CD4 cell count. We've certainly seen that with almost every other comorbidity, uh, co-infection. So I would be wary if there is an effect in HIV. I would imagine it would be in people who with most severely advanced disease, not on therapy and not virologically suppressed. And the second part of that question was, is there any evidence that asymptomatic exposure and transmission? Um, we, yeah, we do believe that asymptomatic transmission occurs. One of the really burning questions is we know that asymptomatic people, uh, up to 50 percent of people with who you know are known to be COVID positive can have few or no symptoms. They're either going to stay that way or in that they're in that four to five day window of being preclinical and they will soon develop symptoms but of course 80% will just be mild to moderate. Clearly there is transmission happening from those folks. It seems like it's more likely to be occurring from adults and young adults, but not from um, elementary school age kids and very very young kids. But that's a, that's a very important question that I don't think we still have an adequate answer to. I see another question about fomites. I'm gonna see if there's any other that just speak a little more directly. Um, remdesimir being an antiviral, is it different from the others acting on SARS-CoV-19? That's an interesting question. Its mechanism of action may be a little different, but um, I think the proof we're we're testing compounds that are shown in vitro to have some activity. You know, we had a very large trial in China of lopinavir-ritonavir that was unsuccessful, widely publicized negative trial. But the average time from the time of uh, presentation to first treatment was 10 days in that study. And so it, it, we still don't really have a good look at that particular protease inhibitor when it's administered early in the course of the disease. And one of the interesting features of this Iran study was those folks all did get lopinavir, ritonavir early. Um, and that's not because I think there's some um, additional sign there. It's just I don't think we've tested it um, completely yet. In the Remdesivir five versus ten day paper, mortality was higher for five days in ventilated patients. How should we interpret that? Should we treat for five days unless they're ventilated? No, I think knowing knowing the natural history of antivirals and response to antiviral medications, it's it's very common in other you know in influenza in other viral viral pneumonias in particular that the earliest treatment is best and that treatment. Benefit is it wanes after a certain period of time. Um, that finding, these are really these are really difficult studies to interpret to say to do cause and effect, remdesivir and mortality, and then to exclude all of the other factors that go into that, and then to say, well, if there was a little bit higher mortality in ventilated patients, does that mean it's different or the, the Clearly, it should be used as early as possible in people with moderate to severe disease and O2 needs, as in the criteria. And I would stick with that, including those who are mechanically ventilated.
0: Sorry, go ahead, Sorry. So go, go ahead Jen. Oh, I was just going to let you know that we're at time. Um, was there another question that you that you saw that you really wanted to answer? We could do one more.
1: Um, sure. I, I I was going to speak to the plasma transfusion convalescent plasma um, We we have really interesting studies and data that are being accumulated, but no answers on that point yet. And again, the, the variability of the response with antibodies only adds to that dilemma. Some people have very weak antibody responses, some robust. There's some question if part of this is immunologically mediated, could we do harm by using a high antibody titer? So So I would say wait for that science. In fact, wait for all of of this science. Things are so new. The astonishing thing about the number of trials and attempts we're seeing is how quickly they've all been developed. And you should have some skepticism in this. Um, I think, as Marty Hirsch said in his editorial in the New England Journal, remdesivir is uh, really in a very important first step. The the improvement is moderate, but it's really a wonderful first step forward. Thanks to everybody for joining, and thanks again to CCO for the opportunity.
0: Thank you very much, Dr. Shearer, and thanks to listeners for joining in. As a reminder, to view the full 2020 Virtual COVID-19 Conference Coverage Program on the Clinical Care Options website, click on the link in the show notes. Please be sure to check back regularly for more episodes on important infectious disease topics. Thanks.